promised the top of the program we'd be finally getting to our good pal Dr. Gary Aguilar down in Marin County, and let's do that now. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Gary. Well, uh, it's very good to be back, and uh, thank you very much, Doug. Our pleasure, but uh, there's been something startling. It doesn't happen very often in science or certainly in anatomy, but someone looked at the eye and said, hey, there's another layer there we never noticed before. So what do, <laughs> what do you know about this? Uh, well, it, it's not something that you're going to run across, and it's not something that you can really even see as an ophthalmologist, and I use all these magnifying uh, tools to look very closely at the eye. But the surface of the eye, uh, when you look at someone's eye, you see their eye color, but actually you're looking through an entirely translucent, clear membrane called the cornea. Mm-hmm. And it was thought before that the cornea had five layers, and now they discovered there's a sixth. Well, what are we talking about? Uh, the five layers you know, consist of the outer layer, which is a bunch of cells, the corneal epithelium, just like the skin is your epithelium. Yes. The cornea itself has a translucent uh, uh, layer of cells called the epithelium. And beneath that, there's another membrane called Bowman's membrane where those epithelial cells essentially sort of attach to. Okay. Sort of. And then, and then there's some thickness to the cornea. It just has to be something that provides some rigidity and stability to it, and that's called, called the corneal stroma. And then it used to be thought uh, there was a very inner layer of the eye called the endothelium, the inner one, just like the, the inside of your you know, esophagus and your stomach has an endothelium. The inside of the eye has a corneal endothelium. And, but just outside that, there's something called decimase membrane in which the corneal endothelium is attached to. Well, now they've discovered that just you know, you're going from outside to inside, epithelium, Bowman's membrane, the stroma of the cornea, and now they've discovered that before you get all the way back in the back of the eye to something called decimase membrane, uh-huh. just in front of that, there's a very uh, firm membrane called DUA's layer, D-U-A, after the uh, guy who invented it, who's a, uh, he's an Indian ophthalmologist uh, named Harminder Dua, uh-huh. uh, practicing in, in England. And, um, you know, it's probably beyond the scope of anyone's interest to figure out or to know how exactly he discovered it. But suffice it to say that the cornea itself, the thickness is pretty, uh, the thickness of the entire cornea uh, isn't much. It's about a half a millimeter and, uh, or 500 microns, actually more like 550 microns. And this thing's what, like 15 microns? Which yeah, is, but the Dewar's layer is about 15 microns. Which is like about, and, what, two and, red blood cells uh, d- so, in depth? Yeah, or, yeah. it's like Real really thing. microscopic. But, but it's, a, it's basically a little sheet, and the reason it may be important is that there are some conditions that affect the eye, you know, where rather than the, eye, the, the surface of the eye, the cornea being nice and round and, and sort of spherical-like so that it can bend the light rays properly, uh-huh. sometimes it's warped. It's called keratoconus. Okay. And in some people, the keratoconus can occur in both eyes, uh, not infrequently, only in one eye. It can occur sporadically. There can be families of it. It's an interesting situation, as keratoconus, where the eyes are just kind of wobbly. And it, it, it's, you know, most everybody knows or has heard the term astigmatism. Okay. And astigmatism is when the eye is a little bit more steeply curved in one direction than another, but when it gets really more steeply curved in one direction than another, then we start calling it keratoconus because it starts 
being shaped rather than a kind of a roundish ball like a cone. Hence the term keratoconus. Now, uh, keratoconus is, you know, not a good thing to have. Sometimes you can correct it with glasses or hard contact lenses. But then a bad thing that happens with keratoconus in some patients with severe keratoconus is that they get little ruptures. And these little ruptures allow fluid from the inside of the eye to leak, to leak into the cornea itself. And the cornea has to remain clear. When that fluid yeah. breaks through those inner layers, um, and Dua's layer plays a role here, when it breaks in there, it may cause scarring and loss of acuity. So that Dua's layer, they're now starting to think, is a very important barrier that prevents um, you know, uh, this, these, uh, what they call high drops or these episodes of rupture mm-hmm. with fluid leaking into the uh, corneal stroma and causing blurred vision and scarring. And, and that Dua's layer may be critical in preventing these acute episodes of leaking fluid called high drops. Well, but this, is there any way to, like, strengthen that layer, do anything about it? Or, I mean, is that just something for future researchers? Well, you know, it, it, you know, this is the problem in reading the literature that's available now. They say, well, it's going to be very important in our managing, you know, uh, corneal transplants and other things like this to make certain that we maintain corneal clarity. And, you know, that's probably true. But it doesn't say what they're going to do differently <laughs> than what they're doing now. They've made, they've made some huge advances in corneal transplant surgery. I mean, I yeah. don't do that kind of subspecialty work. I do lots of other stuff, but not mm-hmm. corneal transplants. But they used to basically, you know, chop out the whole cornea of the eye, if you can imagine that, from a, a donor, generally a cadaver donor, mm-hmm. and then, you know, put that, you know, take out somebody's scarred cornea, um, you know, say after an injury, a burn, a trauma. And wait, I just want to stop right there. Then actually, when it comes on your on your driver's license, when you're an organ donor, that is that is one thing that uh, you, you may be donating. You may be donating your cornea, yeah. and uh, and it may be sight saving for someone who gets it. Well, there you go. But it, 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 so now what they figured out is that a lot of these people, you don't need to take the whole cornea out. You can basically just take the inner layer of the cornea, the corneal endothelium, and so that inner layer of the cornea is what kelp, helps keep the cornea clear. And if the rest of the cornea is good, but your inner layer is weak, you can just do an you know an endothelial transplant essentially, and that works pretty well. Well, Dr. Gary, thank you for that. Uh, I hope that we will be able to make some use out of this new layer, and, and who knows. But uh, the, the, the thing that really strikes me about this story, um, above all else, is this guy, Dua, has now achieved a form of immortality. We will always be naming this layer after this guy. That's right, and all the little residents that have to learn all these layers <laughs> used, used to only have to learn five layers. Now that i got to remember this other weird layer called Dua's layer, D-U-A, because that's his name. Well, I'm sure I learned all those layers back in anatomy, but I, 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 I thank you for the refresher because I was, I was a little vague on some of the details. Yeah, <laughs> more than my pleasure. Uh, yeah, these things are always fun, entirely irrelevant to my clinical practice and probably to anybody who's listening to this, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, kind of cool. Oh, and before we go, I want to thank you for forwarding that joke from uh, our, our mutual pal Peter Buxton uh, about uh, swishing water, et cetera. Uh, yes. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. All right, speaking of things surgical, we would note the uh, Sacramento Bee from last Sunday. Page one headline, UCD surgeons quit under a cloud.
This has to do with a couple of neurosurgeons at UCD who intentionally infected some brain cancer patients with bacteria. They've had to resign after the university found they had deliberately circumvented internal policies, defied directives from top leaders, and sidestepped federal regulations. It seems to this correspondent that this whole issue is kind of bogged down into, um, well, as the article points out, were the surgeons performing research or were they providing innovative care? We don't have time to pick this piece apart at any great length on today's program, but um, I just have a feeling that there's a lot of administrators involved in all of this. And after being in medicine for 30 years, I can tell you that's never a good thing. But at some point in the future, we will try and uh, pick this story up. And in a sort of medically related story, we talked, I don't know, a couple years ago in this program about absinthe, supposedly having hallucinogenic effects and how it got banned. And New Scientist magazine had a curious discussion on this that might be worthy of a slight digression. Someone asked a few issues ago about absinthe and its supposed hallucinogenic effects due to wormwood. The writer asked, does this effect really exist? In response, Alastair Scott, writing from Switzerland, said, Absinthe is not hallucinogenic. I am drinking a glass of it as I write. Absinthe contains the compound thujone, which was once considered on account of its molecular shape to be part of a class of compounds called cannabinoids. I think we've heard of those. Which suppress neurotransmitters in the brain. But noted the writer, in 1999, a couple of researchers showed this to be false. Absinthe's reputation was generated by French wine growers around the beginning of the 20th century. The French were drinking 36 million liters of absinthe annually, and this was hitting the wine growers' pockets. The growers fought back with the aid of a burgeoning temperance movement, which bizarrely regarded wine as natural because it came from the land. The wine growers claimed that absinthe called hallucinations, epileptic fits, and suicides. They produced lurid posters and even created a medical-sounding term, absinthism. The anti-absinthe hysteria reached its climax when a vineyard worker in Switzerland, Jean Lanfray, shot his pregnant wife and two daughters before attempting to kill himself. Public relations focused on one detail, two glasses of absinthe he'd consumed. The fact that Lafray was an alcoholic was ignored. On the day of the attack, he'd not only drunk two glasses of absinthe, but also downed a cream de mint, six cognacs, seven glasses of wine with his lunch, and another glass of wine before leaving work. He also had a cup of coffee with brandy in it. Oh, and an entire liter of wine before getting home, then another coffee with brandy. But such was the hysteria that people were in no doubt that absinthe was the cause. By 1908, the first ban became definitive. The writer concluded, noting that Fortunately, saner views prevailed, and in 2005, absinthe was re-legalized in its country of origin. To this, I would add that both Mr. McMillan and I have conducted a certain number of clinical trials with absinthe, and can report that based on our experience, the hallucinations were indeed not part of the experience. On occasion, some degree of intoxication, however, was It is, after all, an alcoholic beverage. Let's talk about a couple other strange medical things, starting with the fact that I received in the mail a uh, potential training course of eight seminars of 17 hours each with a potential of 136 hours of continuing medical education on clinical homeopathy. I'm not sure whether if I took this bunch of quackery, I could actually claim that I was going to get 100 and some odd hours, but uh, maybe so. I don't know, I find the whole thing pretty disturbing because, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, 
integrative medicine and you know alternative practices and reach out into some areas that are kind of gray areas of medicine and there's another thing then there's quite another matter to talk about stuff that is sheer charlatanism stuff that 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 if it were to work according to the theories of why it works it would have to run counter to all of our understanding of chemistry biochemistry physics and physiology which is a tough tough order Anyway, I probably shouldn't mention it at all, but I'm just, I'm so appalled. Patients came in to see me last weekend and said, uh, one of them said, yeah, I was taking a homeopathic remedy. And I said, well, you know, you basically were taking some expensive water. Of course, let's take a swing here at conventional medicine, or at least let me uh, echo the opinions expressed in the B in the Inside Medicine column by Dr. Michael Wilkes, titled Overtreatment Rampant and Heavily Sanctioned. Dr. Wilkes talked about things like, uh, well, <sighs> vitamin C, a discredited treatment to prevent colds. I mean, they've done a jillion studies now and show that vitamin C really doesn't do much for colds. In spite of the fact that Dr. Linus Pauling, a genius without a doubt, Nobel Prize winner in two different areas, including chemistry, thought it might work, but, well, subsequent studies just don't back him up. Said Dr. Wilkes, study after study show they don't work, but we allow them to be sold and dispensed under the banner of consumer freedom of choice. He proposed putting signs above medicine. Yeah, I think they should put signs above the homeopathic remedy saying, warning, this is quackery. But uh, that's my own opinion. But said Dr. Wilkes, such educational campaigns of putting signs won't happen and then everyone except the consumer wins in this conspiracy to sell a product we know doesn't work. The manufacturer doctors, distributors, and the store itself. Of course, he alludes to the fact that uh, that cough syrups don't work in children, which yours truly cannot agree with based on years and years of clinical experience and using them myself. But he's on really firm ground, I think, here in complaining about how we have redefined blood pressure in a rather odd way. They've done a bunch of studies now showing that using high blood pressure medicine to treat otherwise healthy people with mild hypertension, defined as blood pressure of 140 to 159 over 90 to 99, does not reduce death, does not reduce strokes, does not reduce heart attacks. So Dr. Wilkes, chances are you haven't read about this prestigious study and chances are your doctor won't change his approach to treating mild hypertension because of it. In fact, recently, American experts went in the opposite direction and changed the definition of hypertension by lowering the upper number. That's the systolic pressure from 160 down to 140. Overnight, this change resulted in 13 million new adults being considered hypertensive. And not accidentally, it added 13 million customers for whom treatments might be recommended. Is this disturbing? Well, I think yes, it is. All right, we got a letter a couple weeks back when we were reading from Edward Bernays's treatises on public relations, and people wrote to say, Let, let's hear more of that from the master himself, what he had to say about it. So let's talk a bit about PR and some examples <laughs> of, of, of PR that uh, may make your toes curl. Writing back in 1923 in Crystallizing Public Opinion, Edward L. Bernays said, People accept the facts which come to them through certain existing channels. They like to hear new things in accustomed ways. They have neither the time nor the inclination to search for facts that are not readily available to them. The expert, therefore, must advise 
first upon the form of action desirable for his client, and secondly, must utilize the established mediums of communication in order to present to the public a point of view. This is true whether it is that of a majority or minority, old or new personality, institutions or groups, which desires to change by modification or intensification the store of knowledge and the opinion of the public. I suspect he's right about that. Of course, in a current era of the Internet, we have to redefine what is readily available to people. We now have a tool at our disposal that people could have only dreamed of 90 years ago. But I do think about a friend of mine who's done a little bit of public relations who sort of smirks when she talks about her work and says to me, I tell people what they want to hear. And I'm sure it works. And to quote further from the master in his subsequent book, Propaganda from 1928, well, this one needs a quotation or two, said Bernays, The great political problem in our modern democracy is how to influence our leaders to lead. The dogma that the voice of the people is the voice of God tends to make elected persons the will-less servants of their constituents. This is undoubtedly part cause of the political sterility of which certain American critics constantly complain. No serious sociologist any longer believes that the voice of the people expresses any divine or especially wise and lofty idea. The voice of the people expresses the mind of the people, and that mind is made up for it by the group of leaders in whom it believes, and by those persons who understand the manipulation of public opinion. It is composed of inherited prejudices and symbols and cliches and verbal formulas supplied to them by the leaders. Fortunately, writes Bernays, the sincere and gifted politician is able by the instrument of propaganda to mold and form the will of the people. In reading that, you may understand why this book was highly prized by the Nazi party in Germany, which certainly set out to mold the will of the people and did it pretty well, sad to note. We also want to refer to Mother Jones, article by Chris Mooney. This is an old one. This is the one I pulled out of the files when we talked about my trip out to the garage a while back. It's from 2005, but it was titled Some Like It Hot and talked about 40 public policy groups that have this in common. They seek to undermine the scientific consensus that humans are causing the earth to overheat. And they all get money from ExxonMobil. This may be online by now, I'm not sure, but um, boy, it's a hell of a piece. And of course, eight years later, they're still at it. And eight years later, thanks to their public relations efforts, America may be the, uh, the main nation on earth where a sizable number of people just, just don't believe this is happening. When I have my computer on in front of me, I can click on, I don't know how many stories now about you know the lack of Arctic ice. Uh, just, good Lord. I was about to pose the question of, you know, how, how clear does this have to be before people will believe it? And then I realized that some people are not going to believe it, no matter how clear the evidence is. Of course, we've taken a position in this program on many occasions that uh, nuclear power has to have a role to play in our future if we're going to find some way of uh, generating energy that doesn't produce carbon dioxide. And I think for, for today, we're going to leave aside all these... Uh, all the discussions we could have on the subject of fracking and how, uh, well, because natural gas is now cheaper than ever, they're burning it more than ever. And in fact, uh, the idea that it's going to be good to have all this natural gas because it burns cleaner than coal may not pan out because it's cheaper and we're burning more of it. 
But that said, I still enjoyed the book, A Short History of Nuclear Folly by Rudolf Herzog, subtitled Mad Scientist, Dithering Nazis, Lost Nukes, and Catastrophic Cover-Ups, because it does have a lot of, um, well, true stories in it. And Herzog points out, as we have pointed out on the show as well, that nuclear industry is a stepchild of the nuclear arms manufacturing that goes back to uh, the Trinity Test in New Mexico in 1945. And unfortunately, a lot of shortcuts were taken that shouldn't have been taken. But when you start getting into hydrogen bombs and what they wanted to do with those, boy, things do take a turn into the surreal. But I thought I'd quote from one little section he has in the book about, uh, about some efforts to have some atomic testing up in Alaska that some folks weren't too crazy about. Noted Herzog describing a meeting. They were received in the cramped Point Hope Community Center in which about 100 Inupiaq were sitting silently, their backs to the walls. The atmosphere was tense. In an attempt to relax the mood, the AEC representative showed a short publicity film about the advantages of peaceful nuclear detonations. To crown the absurdity, the government's PR men had even included a cartoon simulation of the explosion at Ogotorok Creek. It replaced the giant clouds of dust that would have resulted from the detonation of five nuclear bombs with small, friendly-looking clouds. After some of the local leaders spoke up, a government doctor, who was a a specialist in parasites, not physics, assured his audience that the fallout would hardly be measurable. There would be no danger whatsoever to either human beings or animals, and all the radiation would have disappeared from the area after a few months. Noted Herzog, the other AEC experts made no attempt to contradict these statements, although they knew that they were false. Anyway, I want to go to the Uncle John's bathroom reader to talk in more details about this idea for an atomic plane to fly over Russia, which we mentioned a few weeks ago. The details are, are kind of delicious, but we also don't have time today to talk about Fire in the Lake, although there's a lot of PR that went into the whole Vietnam War mess, but this book by Frances Fitzgerald, which she finished in 1972, it's astounding to look back at how on the money we now know her to be based on what uh, what come out what came out since. Of course, having her dad in the CIA probably helped uh, give her some inside track data, but um, that's for a future show. We've got only about 10 or 11 minutes left, so let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 